All right, let's get to the third session. You remember that as I closed off the previous session, just as a reminder, exile, finding in the self, that journey, the journey has a destination, that journey has trials and tribulations, it has the a purposeful finding of the self, of a re-understanding, right, all of that, and we reach it, and we reach that destination, and we reach that understanding of self, and understanding anew of our community and environment in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, in the oneness that we pursue with Him, with God. That's the destination. And I also mentioned that the only reason we have Holy Week is so that we're really being turned around, turned about every day. And we have a tool specifically designed for that, the mystery of confession. That sacrament uh, that we celebrate, hopefully as often as necessary, but at least at least during the Lenten periods of, of the year. And this, this topic itself was, it became really important for me. And I'll share with you uh, a, a couple of things here. I'm the son of a priest, as you've noticed, and as you know already. And being the son of a priest, we did go to confession, but I would say that my first genuine confession was later. Not because I didn't trust my father, I did and I do, and it wasn't because he didn't trust me. You know, he did and he does, but it's just not the same when it's your dad. <laughs> and it wasn't meant to work that way. It's just the reality of life, and we need to be present in that reality of life. See, that's why, that's another reason why we're Orthodox. That's another reason why we're not Zen Buddhists, okay? The reality is meaningful to us, and we're okay with it being difficult and even limiting sometimes. Okay, so my first kind of a glimpse at confession when I first started realizing that I need to maybe pay attention to it a little more differently was we lived in Vancouver, Canada, and in Vancouver, Canada, there was another Orthodox priest, also Romanian, older um, monk, and he was just a sweet old man, uh, Father Justinian, and he didn't drive, and he was elderly, and our family, you know, we loved him, and often we would take him to appointments and stuff like that. And so um, one time uh, I was in the car with Father Justinian and my dad. I was in the back seat. I can't remember how old I was, but upper teen for sure. Um, and, <clears throat> and my dad had to go in just for a... I think for just a quick prayer for some health for, for a family. So we get there, my dad parks, and you know, he said, let's go inside. And then Father Justinian says, well, no, we'll just wait here because then it's going to take longer if we go. And 
of course, it would have taken longer. Anyhow, bottom line is my dad just said, okay, great, I'll just go in. I'll be done in 15, 20 minutes. Okay, good. During that time, the old man had something, had something in mind. He just turns to me and he says, so listen, you're the son of a priest and you're getting older now. Let's talk about confession. I commemorate him to, to this day. He died shortly after. Um, and I commemorate him to this day because he was so dear to me. I wasn't that close with him personally, but we knew him, I knew him, you know, growing up. And that really forced me to pay attention. Then, you know, I college ended up in seminary and I, uh, I became, um, uh, I became rather, rather attached to a wonderful father confessor, a professor at the seminary that remained my confessor for many years. He's now passed on as well. I, the confession, the relationship with my confessor ha is the most nurturing relationship I have. It really is. It's not with my wife. That doesn't mean I don't love her. That doesn't mean she doesn't love me or we don't take care of each other. It's, it's, it's a wonderful relationship. But as far as I'm concerned, the care, the nurturing of my soul takes place most directly in my relationship with my confessor. And it's really the, the healing of everything that I break. <laughs> and I really want everybody to have that. I think it's absolutely necessary. I think it's indispensable. Indispensable. The ultimate destination for each person's oneness with God is coming out to us from everything we do, but we all need to remind ourselves of, of that famous quote from St. Athanasius, right? God became man so that man can become God. And that's very sobering. It's a serious statement. So now I want to describe to you my first confession as a priest where somebody came to me. I was ordained in 1999 um, at St. Stephen Church, a wonderful Romanian church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And prior to me, there had been a priest there for 51 years. 51 years, brothers and sisters. And he was born in Ohio and had kind of a difficult circumstance of life. He spoke broken Romanian and broken English. I'm not kidding. <laughs> but he was such a loving man, just a wonderful loving man. I, and I, I served with him as a, as a cantor for about a year, a year and a bit maybe, during graduate school. Um, and um, then, uh, you know, I was scheduled to get married, and the thought was that I would be ordained a deacon to be his deacon. 
to kind of finish off graduate school. Um, but unfortunately, he fell ill, gravely ill, and he could not serve anymore. And, you know, in discussions with the bishop, who had known me since I was in high school, and um, in discussions with, you know, my dad, obviously a priest in the archdiocese, everything. Um, and, like I said, I, I had known Archbishop Victorine, God rest his soul, and he was a holy man, holy, holy man. So when I was speaking with him, uh, he said, well, you know, Timmy, how in the monastery, you know, we say that you have to serve in every rank for 40 liturgies before you're moved up to the new rank. That's, that's been the tradition of the church in the ancient times. It's not really kept to these days, but for you, it's going to be 40 hours. <laughs> So, transfiguration, I was ordained a deacon on the 6th of August, and then 8th of August, which was a Sunday, I was ordained a priest. So I never even got a chance to own my own deacon vestments. I tell you, these guys, hierarchs, they have their own ideas about stuff. Uh, but anyhow, I, um, uh, I understood there was a need, and at that point there was a greater need in the church for clergy than even there is now. Thank God now we have more, more uh, men and, and couples, as a matter of fact, who are, who are embracing this life of ordained ministry. But I was in this parish, which was rather small. It had, it's, an, it's an old Romanian parish, 100 years almost, and it had gone through some stages, and there were not a lot of people. But, um, I, you know, I was ordained, like I said, right away, and I started serving. I had my first liturgy. I was ordained on the 8th. My first liturgy alone was on uh, August 29th, the feast of the beheading of St. John the Baptist, and I felt like I was being beheaded right there because I was so scared that I was going to, you know, miss something in the liturgy. Um, and you, keep in mind that by that point, I was already well-versed in liturgics. I had stuff memorized like there was no tomorrow because I loved it. I told you, I started studying it on my own when I was 15, 16, like a nerd. And I, um, in fact, even my ordination to the diaconate, I felt good. It was right. I got it. You know, it, it went. And then when it came to the priesthood, my confessor, an old professor, another, my dad, a bunch of priests, you know, very tiny, small altar, could barely move there, sweating, you know, just middle of August, no air conditioning, you know, nothing like that. And, um, and again, I had studied it. I, I felt I knew it by heart. And when I got there, and my dad and my confessor brought me down the, down the center. If anybody's seen, if you haven't seen an ordination, go see one if you, if you get an opportunity. It's a very moving experience for, for the whole community. But anyhow, so I get there, and then I, when I realize that my dad is on my right, and I'm supposed to get to the bishop there, I just kind of lost it. And I'm not an emotional guy. I'm a very staunch, stoic guy, right? No. <laughs> I, it just wasn't there. There was nothing. Nothing was, I couldn't, they had to, like, literally one of the priests is like, okay, now, get it together, read this. <laughs> um, so that was my, you know, and then, like I said, by that point, I already knew that I had to figure it all out and finish off graduate school. 
uh, and recently married. Uh, so it was, it was fun, it was fun. And um, here comes November, the week before the Nativity Lent was to begin. My predecessor there, Father Eli Motsu, um, he passed away. So that was my first funeral. I had not had a baptism, I had not had a wedding, I had not had a home blessing yet, nothing. My first service was a funeral of this priest that loved me and wanted me to be his successor. Um, so that was fun. And then the next week, it's Nativity Land, so of course, you know, these are pious people. They need to come start a, you know, they're coming to confession. Saturday Vespers, we do the Vespers, and it wasn't the bulletin and all that stuff. And um, after Vespers, I'm like, okay, so I'm here for confessions. And I go over to the side that was kind of, kind of like that, but a little bit closer in front of the Iconostasio, and that's my, that's how I'm used to it, that's how I kind of do it. And the first person that comes is a wonderful old lady, uh, only spoke Romanian, everybody called her Maica, which means mother. Um, and uh, I bet you 90% of the people didn't even know what her actual name was, you know. Uh, Maria, but pretty typical, yeah, close, you're right. Maica, and she was always there for services. She couldn't see, she, she really couldn't see anymore. She was uh, legally blind. So she comes up first from one of the pews, and I come up here to help her. There were a couple of steps, and I say, well, don't worry, I'll just bring that thing over here so you don't have to go up the steps. So she says, okay, and I bring it closer from the front And then she, um, and as I do this, she comes closer and she goes to kneel down, okay? She goes to kneel down, and I just start sweating. I just, it sounds funny, but I was just overtaken, actually realizing I'm 26 years old. I have nothing to give this woman. I haven't, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And I was just so overwhelmed and embarrassed and even ashamed and just I was overcome with those feelings. I, I, I must have been shaking too, I don't know. Uh, but I say to her, you don't have to kneel down. And she goes, yes I do. And she kneels down and I had to help her even kneel down, not just get up. And then as I take my stole, the epitrahelion, and I put it on top of her head, I lean over, she could barely hear too, and I say to her, Micah, I don't, I, I don't know that I can give you anything that's useful for your spiritual development. I feel like I should be coming for confession to you. She goes, I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, it's not my job to come to confess you. And then she just kind of peeks up at me and she says, but it's not your job to say anything. Your job is to just be here. Your job is to just be here. 
that it, it really solved it for me. It, I mean, she fixed it for me, really. I have not been worried about going into confession, to receiving anybody's confession ever since, that first one. I mean, if it hadn't been her, I could have gone through agony for years. But God placed her there for, for my insufficiency, for my lacking. Brothers and sisters, this old woman from a tiny village in Banat, the western part of Romania, who actually could barely read and write even in Romanian, okay, who had only gone through third grade of education, but she prayed. <laughs> And a theologian is one who prays. She healed me of my inability to listen. <laughs> of my unreadiness. And I told her that a couple of years later. I, honestly, when I explained to her how meaningful this was to me, I actually don't even think she quite got it. Now I look at that experience and I think, that's even more of a sign for me that the Lord God is present. That the Lord God is present if we are just present ourselves. So, above all things, the mystery of confession is really the priest willing to be present. To be present. But also for the person confessing to be equally present. It's really a ministry of being there. Of being in it. But at the risk of sounding just a little bit poetic or emotional, which it's easy to do, I don't like taking anything in life for, for just the emotional effect. It's valuable to understand it, because once we understand our emotions, we can see what gives spark to our love. But everything still needs to be taken, studied, and actually processed intentionally and methodically so that we can derive the greatest benefits out of it and be able to share it on, pass it on. The methodology that I like to employ for dealing with anything that I try to learn or relearn is by asking three questions and exploring answers to those. The what, the how, and the why. What, how, why. And I do that actually quite routinely. I force it upon myself, even when I forget it. Especially when it's something completely new. But even when it's something that I have to reevaluate. The what, the how, and the why. <clears throat> 
So if the mystery of confession is something that the church deems necessary, invaluable, and it is here for us to make use of, and we're also assured that it is actually an opportunity for us to remain engaged in that turning around that we experience in the worship services of Holy Week, then what is it? What is this service? Okay? I've chosen four different words to describe what this is. And there could be others. But I wanted to choose four so that we can focus on these. The first thing I want to speak about is cleansing. Confession is a cleansing. It is really cleaning off something dirty. The second thing I want you to consider confession is healing. It is really the healing of something that is ill, of a sickness. It is medicine. Medicine for something that is in pain, that has sorrow. The third thing that I want you to think about is relationship. The first two are probably quite self-explanatory and expected. The third one, I want us to really delve into. And the fourth is really accountability. Now, accountability a few years ago became a buzzword, right? Everybody was using accountability just because it was, you know, the sexy word of the day. But accountability is truly really what we do when we go to see the priest. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time on that. Once again, what is confession? Cleansing, healing, relationship, accountability. So now that we've got these words, I've given it a definition. How? How does this mystery, how does this sac sanctifying service, prayer, action accomplish those things that I have defined it by? Cleansing, healing, relations, and accountability. How do we achieve cleansing? It is the removal of that which is foreign and dirty and sick. Has anybody heard of the flood somewhere in the Bible? There was a flood. There was a big flood. And there was a guy named Noah. Not this Noah. Or the other Noah. <laughs> there was a guy named Noah. And he got away with his family and a bunch of animals. But the rest did not. There's a flood, and the waters of flood remove wickedness. Right? But what, is, what else is there? Is the flood just a punishment? Is it really just a punishment? 
Is it really just giving the retribution for sins to those evil, evil people, unlike Noah and his family? Because they were holy and holy, right? And the others were evil? Is it just that? Or is it perhaps just a strengthening of the relationship of God's people with the Father, who as a loving Father is trying to cleanse, to clean up what has become stained and dirty? Now fire. Think of the idea of fire in the scriptures and in the life of the, God's people. What does fire do? What does fire do in general? It burns stuff, right? It does heat. It does give us heat, right? It gives heat. It can cook meals. But fire also is used to purify metals. Fire is also used to purify different, uh, different uh, liquids. Fire has a way to provide even healing. A little burning with fire can close a wound in extreme situations, right? Do you remember a big fire that took place in the scriptures? Have you heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened there? Is it just the killing off of those evil, debaucherous people? Is it just the revenge of God because they didn't listen to him? Or, or is it really the burning off of the chaff, the cleansing of imperfection, so that the goodness can be preserved? Lot and his daughters are saved, but the rest are not. We tend to think of all of this as punishment for wickedness. We tend to think of it that way. And somehow, even the Old Testament, we kind of wrap it all up as, you know, a different relationship than in the New Testament. There is some of that, no question. But we really need to pay attention to it as the father, right, of the family, where the relationship is actually growing and maturing and where the father needs to actually, from time to time, use a cathartic cleansing. As a parent, have you ever taken away something from your child or given him a punishment? You have. I have. And if you haven't, do it. <laughs> because as a child is maturing, I'm not even worried about growing. As a child is maturing, the child needs to experience the reality of cathartic cleansing of his life, of his habits, so that habits that are not holy become holy habits. I mentioned that earlier this morning, perhaps. So you see, this cathartic cleansing is needful the waters of Jordan. The waters of Jordan is what? The removing of sins and bondage, right? Theologically. 
but it's really the showing off of the cleansing of our lives. And even further, the great blessing of waters at Theophany. Why do we do that? We do it to recall to memory, to bring back in a manifest fashion what happened at the, at the actual baptism of Jesus Christ. And we take that water and we sprinkle our homes with it. It's a spiritual cleansing, but it's really one that we give ourselves so that our eyes can see it, so that our touch can sense it, so that our taste can taste it. And given that we have basil in that water, so that our, even our noses can smell it. This cleansing is necessary. It is needful. That's why we need cleansing in our lives. We see it throughout the scriptures. We see it throughout the life of the church. Confession does this cleansing. How do we achieve healing now? How do we achieve healing? Well, this one might be a little harder to pick out. But we see healing in a couple of different ways being manifested in the scriptures. Okay? First of all, we see healing because Jesus Christ heals people, right? He does it by miracles. We all know that. And not just him, but even the apostles on occasion. And we believe it. Do you need healing? Yes. Do I need healing? Yes. I believe it. You believe it. But we also see healing through the creation of God, for the creation of God, through elements through things we have and things we do. Wine, the story of the Good Samaritan, is what I want to bring to your attention here. The story of the Good Samaritan that all of us have heard. What does he use for healing? First, he uses oil, wine. Why does he do that? Because wine was blessed to be a healing, uh, a, a cleansing, right? A cleansing uh, tool, right? Because of the alcohol. And then oil for soothing. They were actual medicine, part of medicine at the time. So, the person needed healing, you see, and healing was affected. Oil also was poured on the wounds. See, the pursuit of oneness with God becomes more manifestly real when this happens in a real way in our lives. And the spiritual component is equally true when we confess genuinely and when we, we receive 
cleansing and healing genuinely. But you see, aside from wine and oil that he used for healing, what else did the Samaritan give to the poor man that was left for dead? What else did he do for him? <laughs> he took him to aftercare, right? He took him into a place where he could receive care and he paid for it, right? That shows what? Sacrifice. He sacrificed of the self for the well-being of this person. But he did two other things. You see? Sorry? <coughs> Definitely showed compassion. All of this is clear indication of compassion. He paid attention. Before he took the first step to help him, he paid attention, brothers and sisters. And we must not lose sight of that, because if we lose sight of the fact that he was attentive, we take attentiveness for granted. Am I starting to make sense now? He paid attention. He gave the poor man attention. And he wrapped it with love. He wrapped it all in love. You see, confession, healing and cleansing of the sins comes when we are paid attention to. That's why we seek somebody that will pay attention to us. If I go to someone who's clearly not attentive to the fact that I am struggling, I cannot receive healing even if he has the right words to tell me. Attentiveness is crucial. So understanding how we compare cleansing and healing that we see throughout scriptures in the totality of God's people, and we can see that this is valuable and mandatory for the healing and well-being, the, the, the relationship of God's people as a whole with Him, we transfer that same type of cleansing and healing to each person separately. How do we manifest the relationship of the totality of God's people with God in the life of each person, you and I? Early on in the life of the church, Christians would confess by standing up here and confessing. How many of you have heard this before? Confession was public in the church. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Confession was public in the church. You've heard it now if you haven't before. So imagine the last sin you had <laughs> standing up there and telling anybody tomorrow morning. Not fun. Yes, there are some people that still do. And it's expected, expected of them to do it. 
Are you catching my breath here? It became an expectation. It became pressure. And the church in her wisdom, remember what I said? Some of the fathers sat down and said, okay, that's it, let's create a new program for a profession. No. You see, they learned. They learned that they could heal people when confession was one on one. It was more effective to provide that spiritual healing and, and cleansing. And it removed what? Shame, pressure, embarrassment, and perhaps even the instinct to hide. You see? How do we perfect relationships then? And I'm speaking specifically of the relationship between confessor, well, well, confessor and confessee, okay? How do we handle that? What do we do to make that a real, genuine relationship? First of all, we have to be willing to trust. Right? You have to be willing to trust. Oftentimes I hear people say, oh, I cannot trust such and such. I hear it often. You probably do too. You've probably said it. I know I've said it. I cannot trust this person. That's too bad, because that's your problem. Now, of course, there may be good reason why we should not trust some people, right? But that's different than saying, I just can't trust somebody because I don't know them. Or I just can't trust them because of such and such reason. If you have a good reason, then you should be attentive, you should be cautious. But in, I'd venture to guess that that doesn't happen very often in the lives of Orthodox Christians, at least not in America. Yes, in struggle sometimes, like in the old communist persecution times, there was a good reason to be afraid. I don't think there is a good reason to be afraid here. Okay? So then, this relationship begins with a willingness to trust. We have to be willing to trust. If we are not willing to trust, we're not going to have a genuine confession. And that's the second thing. Confession has to be genuine. It has to be sincere. It has to be real. If it's not real, if it's not truthful, might as well not do it. Certainly don't go for the mechanics of it. Lord have mercy, don't do that. I'd rather that people not come to me than come to me and hide. Honestly. When people come to me and I hear something grave happening, but I see that they're truthful about it, I'm not worried. When I sit down with somebody and we talk and then 
we go through the prayers. And I, and I know it, you know, 20 years later, you kind of learn a couple of things. And I know that they've been hiding. I just want to cry for them. And with some people, I just kind of hit them. I'm kidding, people. I <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yes, Angie. Yes. Yes, I've had both of those situations. Yeah. I tell them. <laughs> if they so wish, I help them. If they just wish to go and seek on their own, I do let them go on their own. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not, I'm not at all concerned about that. I'm not at all concerned about that. Um, actually, we can share that between us. We became good friends long before he even considered orthodoxy. We became not good friends. We became brothers, loved each other as brothers. I had no expectation on him becoming orthodox. And I think he kind of knew that I wouldn't become Baptist. <laughs> that was pretty clear, yeah. But when, when, he, when he and his family became Orthodox, chrismation, baptism for the boys, that was tough. That was tough on me. Uh, not sure if it was equally tough on him, but we had to work through that hard. It was hard to work through that. Because we were brothers. We were... It was close. In a way that it, it felt like it hindered the confession. Now, of course, it didn't hinder the grace of God, right, that comes through, the, through that work. And doing the prayers equally strong has no dependency on us. But in terms of the actual relationship, very tough. Very tough. And there have been another few situations like that. And then there have been a couple of situations where we just didn't, we couldn't carry on a good, good enough conversation. Not, not with him, but with other. I've had a couple of people with whom the conversation just wasn't getting anywhere. It was just so hard. And it, it was equal part fault on me and on that person, perhaps our personalities, perhaps our backgrounds, perhaps our knowledge of other things, who knows what. It didn't work to the point where we had to come to an understanding, okay, you need confession, and I'm not the right one. The prayers are fine, they're just as good, but you need a relationship with the confessor. Let's find somebody else. Yes? Do you think there are people who, they go to a church, and they go to the priest for confession, and don't feel that relationship but they're not, they don't really know that they can find someone else, and so they don't go to church. Hmm. Because I, I've talked to I, people who... I, I would guess that yes. I would guess that is the case. I would, guess, I would guess that can be the case. And it also depends on, on the parish priest, you know, and how comfortable the parish priest is. Um, 
Yeah, I have a couple of more things to say, and I'm because that, that could be another conversation altogether, but uh, um, let me get back to my process here, but do bring that back. Relationship. This relationship and confession is, like I said, has to be real, has to be genuine, has to be honest. And then, we have to wonder, how do we make it honest and real? How do you make anything honest and real, particularly, particularly a relationship? And it'd be useful to learn a Greek word here. In the New Testament, we see it in, in a number of places, sprinkled out, the word parousia. Translated directly, it just means presence, to be there, right? But in the context, in, in looking at it as a word, it's actually meaning more, the best way to translate it is active presence. Active presence. Remember I talked earlier about attentiveness? In order to be actively present in confession, the confessor needs to be receiving and taking everything in without judgment, without trying to figure it out, but trying to discern what medicine the person has need for. In the medicine, we're speaking of what words, what feeling does the person need to see from you as a confessor? And attentiveness from the confessee is in the, in the very active listening of what the confessor shares. Trusting and truthfully sharing in trust, the heart will actually bring back a return from the confessor. It's an investment. It's an investment of the pouring out of the self. It's almost like you take what you have most dear and you're trying to figure it out, you can't quite figure it out, and you put it on a platter and you give it to the priest. You rid yourself of it, right? But the priest says, no, let's hold it together. We're going to take the things that don't belong here and remove them completely from the platter. And the things that are good, we rearrange them so that they actually are good and working together. So as you go into confession and you pour it all out, imagine that. You give something to someone who has the knowledge to work together with you, to co-labor. Okay, another Greek word, sin diakonia, to co-minister upon each other, okay? To co-labor into clearing out the imperfections, remember the cleansing? 
clearing out the hurt, remember the healing, and rearranging all the good things that are there, because they're always there, so that the person becomes whole. This parousia, active presence, is really mandatory for relationship. And honestly, it's not even unique to confession. Imagine your relationship with your spouse. Imagine coming home and you're tired and you've been tired from working and you're maybe ticked off at something that happened and you're hungry and you experience some road rage, right? Because you people have high traffic here. In Minnesota, Northern Minnesota, it's all peace. <laughs> but you've got all of these things, right? And you come home and your, your spouse or your child just maybe just can't wait to see you and hey honey and you just keep going what has happened there sure you answered sure you looked you were not actively present so what has happened when there was no active presence when Parousia was not there what has happened Hurt. Imagine your confession. There's no active presence. You've received more hurt. Or imagine there is a priest. The way I do confessions, I just kind of sit here, people come sit, we talk, and we go up. I'll talk for the forgiveness where they kneel with the stool, but I sit down with people and talk to them. And they come there and I'm attentive. And people just come and they just tell me a few things and they haven't emptied out anything. And it almost feels like they're expecting focus focus, open session, match from the prayers, right? just becomes an incantation. Like some kind of witchcraft. Here you go. Your sins are forgiven. Stupid. It doesn't work like that. You need cleansing. You need healing. That's what I need when I go. And that requires a working. It requires a kneading of a dough. It requires the plowing of a field. It requires the crushing of grapes. All of this is absolutely necessary. Because when we do this attentively, now we're ready to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters. That's why confession is even there to begin with. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from God. And you already know that, not from the priest. Forgiveness from God but it is actually pronounced by the priest. It is with the words of the priest. And the priest himself forgives you through in God's forgiveness. And you forgive each other. Yes, we forgive each other when we are attentive and 
we really pursue it. But forgiveness, brothers and sisters, is just like attentiveness. It's either active or passive. Active or passive. And I have an entire workshop actually on forgiveness itself, active or, pas or passive. I'll make it very simple for you. You don't even need to listen to that workshop. You know it all now. Passive forgiveness is when you pass by somebody and you bump into them and you say, hey, sorry. Right? And he says, it's okay, it's okay. And you say, hey, sorry. relationship that's been broken. I'm going to say that again. Active forgiveness is when we seek to restore a relationship that's been broken, that's been hurt. That's key, brothers and sisters. That's why we come into the mystery of confession and we sit down with another human being, a human being with flesh and bone and feelings and sins of his own and we sit and attentively talk and attentively listen and attentively decide to make a change that will restore the relationship active forgiveness is what we seek out if I hurt my wife or my wife hurts me there's no room ever for passive forgiveness. There's nothing but active forgiveness. My wife and I had this talk together when we first got married, soon after we first got married. You know, the first big fight. I just met a wonderful newly married couple. Have you guys had your first big fight? No? It's coming. <laughs> Father Noah, make sure you take note. Yeah, it's coming if it hasn't happened. <laughs> when my wife and I first had this discussion, we really were discovering this together. And I started writing and, and looking into this because I really felt I, I wanted to preach about it. And, and I gave a sermon about it. And then I started developing this, like, whatever, workshop. But essentially, we decided at that point that with our own children from the time they were young, we were going to say, if we ask, teach them to apologize, you know, to say sorry, to apologize. We said, we didn't teach them to say sorry. We taught them to say, I apologize, or even please forgive me. And we taught them to say, I forgive you. And they were supposed to hug, okay? So 
they go to, they go to kindergarten, you know, and the teacher, a few days into it, my wife went to get, to get her and said, yeah, it was really something because some kid ran into her and hit her and, you know, kind of bumped her. Um, and she fell. It was our oldest, Andrea. And Andrea's really attentive spiritually. She's got like an extra sense type of thing she always did. And this kid realized that he heard her. You know, he didn't mean to. He was just running like a kindergartner does on the hallway. And he's like, oh, oh I'm sorry. And she's like, oh, I forgive you. And he hugged him. So <laughs> the teacher was like, whoa, what just happened here? So, they told her that, you know, she was crying and she went to him and gave him a hug and said, I forgive you. And the kid didn't know what to do with that, you know. <laughs> so my wife explained it, uh, explained it to her. And uh, thankfully, the teacher uh, were still actually close friends with that, uh, with that, uh, with that teacher and, and, and her family because of that story. Um, anyhow, that was Brendan Baker's mom. He, he went to the same high school as my daughter. And uh, anyhow, so um, this kind of restoration of relationship is the active forgiveness that God gives us. And this is the active forgiveness that we seek from him. It really must be that active forgiveness. And we are assured that God pays attention that seriously that he seeks to give us precisely that very passionately engaging forgiveness so that our relationship is fully restored and not just fully restored, but even better. And those of you who've been married a while, you know that a trial is cathartic. But once you've gone through that active forgiveness, even if you didn't call it active. You know that there was more cleansing and more healing and a stronger relationship. You know what I mean. And if you've had a kid that has done something, or if you yourself was a kid that has done something terrible, when you've embraced again with your parent, you know that the relationship was better because God's active forgiveness was at work, because our active presence was at work. All of this embraced with love. The last part of being accountable, actually, how do we stay accountable, right? is quite self-explanatory. As we went through these things, cleansing, healing, and uh, relationship, accountability comes almost naturally, doesn't it? I like to describe, whenever somebody comes for confession for the first time to me, I don't hear their confession. I don't. I tell them, if you wish to come for confession with me, we're going to first going to meet and talk about confession. Every single person. And I start them young, 14, 15, because they're smart. And they know what they want, and they know what their heart feels already. 
and we sit down and talk. And I tell them relationship, the uh, confession is essentially a relationship of spiritual accountability. Because each and every one of us needs to be able to come clean before at least one other human being in the flesh if we're going to pretend to even come close to being clean before God whom we do not see. If we cannot come clean to our priest, if we cannot come clean to our wives and husbands, we will not be able to be honest and clean before God. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, in a practical sense, how does accountability take place? I'll share with you what I do. I don't look for details. In fact, I think details are kind of cumbersome in confession. Most of the time, I just listen, and I seldom have anything great to say, because I don't force people to come to confession. And those who do come, they come quite genuinely. Not everybody comes in my parish, only about three-quarters of my parishioners come for confession. That's just the reality. When I was younger, it used to bother me a great deal. It doesn't bother me anymore, because I know that the Holy Spirit fills in where I cannot, or where they cannot. But it is still my responsibility to sit down with people and to try to help them, to challenge themselves toward that oneness with God that we seek, the target, right? The destination. And to bring into clarity that target, that destination. So, most times we sit down and talk and somebody says something. If I feel that this person is trying to hide a little bit, either because they're embarrassed or because they forgot or because for any other reason or intentionally, then I ask, how about this? How's this going? Most of the time I don't need to do that. With younger people, I intentionally run through the typical temptations of youth with them. And I simply say, this, 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 this. How are you doing with those? Tell me a little bit. But the ones who do come, those are usually the most genuine, honestly. Sometimes I find myself saying, my dear, you don't need to go any further. I understand enough. And these are people who are mature spiritually, I know they're working through, through it. And <clears throat> uh, lastly, you've probably heard of obediences, right, of canons. 
That's a tough subject, right? Do you know why it's a tough subject? Because none of us want to be told what to do. None of us want to be told what to do. If I tell my wife to put the dishes in the dishwasher in one particular order, she will not do it. She will not do it. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but no, never, right? No. If I tell, yeah, I know, I have to rearrange it every time. She doesn't know. My wife's not here. Did you say you're recording this? <laughs> but tell your child, I want you to make your bed this way. He will not do it, unless he's really, really good, like Noah, right? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is somehow in us. It is that really tempting thorn towards me. Towards me, myself, and I. But you know, obediences are actually greatly useful. So how are we to understand obedience? In this case, I'm going to take you not to Greek, but to Latin. The word obedience in the English language has as its roots in Latin with the statement ob aderum, okay? Which actually means under consultation. Wow, all of a sudden, that's a little bit different, isn't it? <laughs> when you ask somebody to obey you, you ask them to consult with you. Ooh, that's tough, isn't it? Okay, good. So now we understand that we need to work together through this obedience, right? Now what is obedience according to the fathers? Okay. In terms of relationship, of confession, obedience, in the Greek they use the word kanona, which basically means a measuring stick. That's what that means. It means, and I mean, in trying to put it simply, what are you supposed to measure up with? as you proceed in life with that particular action or decision? What is the answer to that? It's always the same. Jesus Christ. Because we established earlier, the only measuring stick, the only standard is Jesus Christ. So when a priest actually offers guidance towards a corrective measure, it is precisely so that there is a readjustment to return to the standard who is Christ. We never fulfill it here on earth, but we always tend toward it here on earth. I personally 
do not give striking canones, canons, obediences. The way I proceed with it, after it's something that requires a period of express, intentional, and methodical repentance, I say, how can we achieve this? What do you think you need? What do you think you need? And I, I ask people to tell me. Sometimes, oftentimes, people say, I don't know, Father, just tell me. Especially some of the wonderful, pious old ladies. Father, just tell me what? No, honey. You tell me. What do you think? And honestly, especially the people who are very intentional in their confession, I find that I have to scale them down. Occasionally, when I feel that people are not attentive enough to the need for repentance, I'll ask them to do something extra, something a little bit different. But most of the time, it's really just a growth together. That's exactly what I need. I speak with my confessor regularly. He's a priest of a more advanced age. I've been with him for many, many years. He knows me rather well. And we speak all the time and, you know, occasionally he'll tell me, I want you to do this. See if that works. See how that works. So now you're hearing my conclusion. Remember we talked about the what? We talked about the how at great length. The why. Why do we do all of this? Why do we do all of this? What's the destination? Oneness with God. Theosis. Oneness with God. Why do we do this? It's really just kind of one word. Eucharist. You want to know why we do this? Come here tomorrow and line up. When the deacon says with the fear of God, with faith and with love, approach. That's why. This is it. Thank you, my dear brothers and sisters. Any questions? Any thoughts? Or do we even have time? Sorry. We do? Okay. Yes, are there any questions, please? Yes. What are the things that a confessee can do to prepare better, you said? That's a great question. So, each person is different, and because of that, there's not a perfect answer to this one. 
Of course, the perfect answer would be attentiveness, right? To be present. But that'd be too simple. There are different techniques, different actual practices that people have. There are people, there are people in my parish who will actually keep a little piece of paper and they write things down. My grandmother did that. And she was holier than all of us put together. <laughs> my, a lot of the old, older people will do that. Now, can you be more self-accountable than that? To write it down? Of course, if you're honest, you want to write it down. But some of them do that, and they keep it. And I have people, you know, sit down, and they bring it out, and I can tell that it's a different pen, you know? I see it in their hands. Um, that's one way. That's not always so, uh, not always so practical, perhaps. Um, especially younger people moving about in the speed of life, today's life especially. Believe it or not, I have also seen person, yes, brought out the notes on the phone. And when I first saw it, I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I keep a note entitled confession.
Here's one thing that I'll, I'll add to this. Um, especially when you go to countries like Romania, Greece, Russia, um, where you have like throngs of people, right? And you have the, the tradition of only receiving communion if you've gone to confession that morning, okay? In some of those situations, that became the practice simply because the priest couldn't develop a relationship with the people, right? There's just too many. You don't see them often enough. It's, you just don't have a relationship, right? So there had to be some kind of mechanism of holding people in order, right? That's not necessarily the way it should be, in fact. It should be that people work to grow in their spiritual maturity in the priest. That's not always possible. I, uh, I, I, I get asked this question whenever I speak about confessors, excuse me, often. Should you go to the same confessor all the time, or can you go to any priest at any time and then whatever? Honestly, the Lord God can forgive you if you're honest, if you go to a different priest every single time you go for confession in your life. So yes, God can do that. Because if we say that He can, we put limits on God. So never say that. God can forgive that fully and completely. However, if people go to a different confessor all the time just to get away so that the priest in your parish doesn't hear your confessions all the time, then you're no longer really sincere. You're actually lying. You see, the goal is to have a relationship, and preferably a relationship that you stay with, so that the confessor becomes your spiritual guide, and he's able to provide you guidance through life. Yes. So this, you know, to, this is actually a tough question to answer, to be honest with you, especially in America, because we have different priests who, who have taught different things. Theologically speaking, no. Theologically speaking, no. And in fact, believe it or not, not every priest is automatically a confessor. You have to typically become more mature as a priest, pastorally, before the bishop will actually give you some bestowal, they call it, right? It's an office. So not even every priest can be can can give confessions for that matter. Well, potentially me when I was ordained at 26. You know, they need a confessor right away, right on that same Sunday, because they needed to, right? But, Really? I was 26 years old. <laughs> and she was 76, that poor woman Micah. She was 76, I was 26. And about 10 years later, I served at her funeral. Wonderful time, tough funeral. So this is a tough question. Some will have the expectation of going to your parish priest. And the, uh, or some will say, you know, some kind of a quantifier at least once a year. I honestly think that when we start to 
divide it like that, we're already trying to divide. If we're getting to that point where we are asking, do I have to? Do I need to? How many times? We're trying to hard. We're trying to hard to rationalize it. We're trying to hard to justify it. Or by, by the same token, if the priest is trying to say, you've got to come at least once a year to me, or at least twice a year to me, you've got to go at least, then I'm trying to hard. But I do say, I want you. So that our relationship is strong. 
stronger. Because the oneness in God does not happen with each one of us individually in the body. It happens as oneness. It happens as communion. That's why he has. That's why we don't just confess out in the air. Because I've been to some of these gatherings and all right, uh, Reverend Timothy, because they don't like to call you father, um, or Pastor Timothy, uh, we're now going to have communal confession. And everybody just talks. It's like speaking in tongues. I'm like, ooh, yeah, you know. It's, it's happened to me quite a few times. And they're all saying something. Nobody understands anything. And then you see some people, oh. Now, I don't doubt that they have, a, there's been some kind of a, chemical reaction where there's been a release of some sort but has there been healing has there been cleansing was the relationship intentional and methodical did you have active forgiveness where you sought to restore the relationship and make it even better perhaps do you see my brothers and sisters Anyhow, we gotta, I gotta be done. Thank you.